Welcome to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I am your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. It's good to be with you again. We have a lot to cover this week. A lot that's been on my mind, I'm sure on your minds. We have a lot happening right here in our own country in um, less than a week. We've had two mass shootings. I talked a little bit about one aspect of the shooting in Atlanta last week, but I want to talk a little bit about guns and faith and how faith ought to inform maybe how we view uh, guns and gun laws in this country. Later on in this episode, I'm going to interview Dr. Lauren Turek. She is a professor at Trinity University, and we're going to turn our attention to how faith and specifically evangelical Christianity has impacted the way the United States does foreign policy and and relates to other countries, things like immigration, because we're seeing uh, alongside the violence that we've seen on the news, uh, a crisis at our border as people flee violence in their own country to try to get into ours in many cases. And so we're going to talk about that. But before we get to that, I do want to start with what uh, what has been on my mind and I'm sure a, a lot of your minds. You know, we, we March 16th, uh, uh, eight people were killed in Atlanta, Georgia, when a man went into uh, several different massage uh, places and, and shot eight people. Six of them were Asian American uh, women. I talked a little bit last week about... Uh, one aspect of that, uh, specifically around kind of misogyny and sex and how v- religious views about that have created an atmosphere in some cases where uh, things like this can happen. Uh, I, but I want to talk about a related issue today, which is really more specifically about guns, because it wasn't even a week later on March 22nd that 10 people in Boulder, Colorado were killed. We're still learning about really both of these shootings. But in the, in the case of Boulder, we had just another act of kind of a senseless act of violence where someone used, uh, a weapon really that, that has no use other than, uh, shooting people and, and gunned down 10 people, 10 people died. He's in custody now. And I just have to say kind of closer to home, uh, earlier this month on March 7th, uh, a nine-year-old boy named Kyan Green was shot and killed here in St. Louis. He was riding in a car with his parents delivering food to his grandmother in a neighborhood just south of downtown St. Louis. And he was shot and killed. And of course, this didn't make national news. It it barely made local news. Things like this happen every day in this country and we've become desensitized to it. But he was the seventh child to be murdered this year in the city of St. Louis. Seven. And we're not even three months into the year. And he was really special to our church and to the gathering because he was a graduate of our literacy uh, project program at Peabody Elementary School right here in the city, the gathering, the church that I serve. Um, We have a partnership with the public schools in the city of St. Louis, and and we mentor and and help teach kids to read. And Kion was one of the students who went through our program. And at nine years old, um, he's dead. He was was gunned down. And what all these things, of course, have in common, I mean, there's so much about this, uh, all three of these, that's ugly, sinful, broken. But it's revived a debate once again, about gun ownership and the politics around guns and what do we think about guns. And, and already you're beginning to see politicians play out really familiar scripts on both sides of the aisle. But for me, it's, it's really raised a question that I get over and over and over again. And that is, Matt, 
you know, how should Christians think about these sorts of things? Like, should our faith impact our our politics around guns or even just our individual decision to own a gun? Does, you know, can Christians own guns? And how, you know, strongly should Christians fight for either Second Amendment rights or gun control? And so I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about this because, you know, I think it's just critically important that we, we think about current events and we think about so-called political issues like like gun control, that we think about them through a lens of faith, that we don't just ask a question, you know, what do we believe or how do we grow up or what does our political party tell us, but what does our faith tell us about these things? And, and can faith influence the way we think about such things? And, and I don't think there's anything more important than something like guns. Uh, so I wanted to I want to just recap a little bit. You know, the politics around guns have been fairly clear for a while. I would say that, and I am oversimplifying a little bit, but on one side, there are people who really come at gun laws from the perspective of freedom. They really think, you know, the Second Amendment gives us the freedom to bear arms. It's part of our Constitution. It's a fundamental right, just like the right to free press, to free religion, free speech. Our Constitution gives us the right to bear arms. And therefore, kind of any policy or any law or any restriction against that freedom is an infringement on our rights. And the argument really in its simplest form is that the the government ought to be in the business of protecting our freedoms and rights and certainly shouldn't infringe on them. And so to put a ban on guns to restrict them or anything else is the government doing exactly what it's not supposed to do. It's, and it's failing to do what it's supposed to do, which is protect our rights. And so there are a lot of people who defend the Second Amendment, and they, they, they don't see that as a historical relic, but it has ongoing relevancy. And they'll cite self-protection and hunting and protection from an overbearing government and an ability to defend oneself and all these other uh, kinds of modern-day issues. And I think most people who are in this camp really are sensitive to gun-related deaths. I mean, I, I, I think most people care, but they would argue that most gun tragedies and crimes are not the result of, you know, the legal acquisition of firearms and more laws isn't going to solve, uh, you know, the, the situation in Atlanta or what happened in Boulder, Colorado. People even point out research that shows that, you know, restricting guns doesn't lower gun crime. It only lowers the number of legal citizens who can protect themselves. And so, and so, so this really represents kind of, kind of one side of the, de- the debate. But I think there's another set of people who would come at gun laws differently. You know, other people, you know, if one side emphasizes freedom and rights and the government's role to protect those freedoms, I think another side would come at, at guns emphasizing the common good and what makes for good public policy. And one arguably more fundamental job of government is to protect people's pursuit of life, liberty, and, the, and happiness. And you know, people on the other side would argue that, that guns infringe upon this basic right, needs to be addressed. You know, go- government ought to create an atmosphere where people can thrive, where people can experience life, liberty, and, and happiness. And, and so when it comes to guns, proponents of more gun control or gun laws will point to the public policy ills that can be traced to guns. For example, there are typically thirty to 40,000 deaths a year Um, by firearms. A third of those are homicides, two-thirds roughly are are people taking their own life, but the number is too high. 
I mean, it costs kids and adults their lives, even if uh, many of these deaths are due to mental illness or criminal behavior. You know, people would argue if there are less guns available, less guns would be stolen, less guns would be used inappropriately. A fundamental right can be regulated if it serves the common good, if it protects people's basic right to life. And so... In addition, you know, people I think who support gun control would argue that the Constitution couldn't have predicted the sort of range of technology and availability of weaponry. You know, we saw this in the uh, Colorado shooting, especially the kind of weapons that are used or things that, that really couldn't have been imagined by the writers of the Constitution. People would argue the amendment is dated and it requires some reasonable interpretation and regulation. And so people on this side, I don't think most of them want to take away every weapon, take away all your hunting weapons, but usually argue for some kind of reasonable regulation, something, by the way, that the vast majority of Americans would agree with. And this is really not about trying to restrict a fundamental right. It's about protecting people and making laws that, that just promote the common good. And so, of course, in our political polarization, the sides get characterized by their most extreme advocates, people who think, you know, we ought to be able to own whatever we want, any kind of weapon, that the, the Second Amendment gives us that right, and, and, and to characterize the other side as people who want to take away every gun that you have. And like most things, we just get further and further apart. It makes it one of the most complicated, most hotly debated, controversial, emotional, and by the way, well-funded political issues in this country. And we, we've all seen the pattern, like it kind of goes dormant and then something like this past week happens where we have multiple shootings and all of a sudden the debate is revived. The same old familiar scripts, people argue on both sides. We, we kind of all know what will happen. It, it sort of settles back down and people forget about it until the next thing happens. I mean, in 2016, 2017, you know, it, people have a hard time even remembering that we had the, the two most deadly you know, shootings in modern American history. The first one happening in Orlando, in a nightclub in Orlando, that was in 2016, and then a year after that in Las Vegas. And um, I often think, you know, if, if, if those two events didn't get us to change our thinking around guns, I'm not sure another shooting will. It's like we already have in our minds the arguments we want to use, no matter where which side of this we're on. And, I, and I've already seen on Facebook people just picking up those scripts and saying and, and arguing from their, you know, previously held convictions. So what I'd like to, though, challenge us to think about as people of faith is, you know, regardless of what your politics says about it or regardless of what you think about it or how you were raised, you know, how would Jesus want us to think about this? How would our faith um, impact the way we think about this? And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. You know, Jesus never talks about guns. It's not as simple as opening up the Bible and say, well, where's that passage where, where Jesus talks about guns? I mean, it'd be a thousand years before something like a gun was invented. But the Bible does, at all sorts of points, talk about weapons and warfare and arming oneself and protection. And there are a lot of ways to come at a question, like how would our faith impact the way we view guns? But if we're, I, th I think if we're, if we're looking at the Bible, and this is a question I get a lot, what would the Bible say about this? I think the place to start is, what is the world as God wants it to be? I mean, what is God aiming for here? Or a different way to put it is, you know, God, the Bible says, is, is, is trying to redeem the world. So what does a redeemed world look like? And fortunately, the Bible is full of images of what 
God wants the world to be like, what God is working towards in the world. So we have passages like Isaiah, and I'm going to actually read some scripture to you here. This is Isaiah chapter 2. It says, he will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares, that is their weapons into farming equipment, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Or you can go to Revelation in the New Testament. You know, this is sort of the vision of what the new creation, according to God, looks like. It says in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, a bride. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so what we know from reading the Bible is that the kingdom of God is going to be a place where weapons are unnecessary, where violence will be abolished, where self-protection will not be a concern. It's going to be a place where fear and grief and anger are no longer the, the things that motivate human living. Now, what some of you are thinking is, Matt, I get that, but that's like pie in the sky. We are not there yet. We live in the real world, not the new creation. And there is still violence and there is still fear and anger and the need for protection. But, but at least this gives us the goal. We understand this is the world that God is trying to create. And he calls Christians, at least, to join God in the work of creating that world. So it's important to establish this is what we're aiming for, a world where guns are unnecessary. But the, but the question is sort of like, what do we think right now? How does Jesus want us to live right now? And Jesus talks about that. You know, I, I think one of the best examples is in the Beatitudes in Matthew. It's this great example of Jesus saying, look, I understand you have to live with a foot in each world. Like you have to point toward the world that God wants, but you have to live in the real world. And he said, so here's some advice on that. And I'm going to read some of those to you. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, happier people who make peace because they will be called God's children. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose those who's, who want to hurt you. People slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. Or you've heard that it was said you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who, who persecute you. Now, these verses are hotly contested. Some take them to be sort of limited in their application, and others want them to be kind of absolute, that points towards pacifism or something like that. But regardless, they sort of establish the direction towards the way that Jesus wants us to live. And as a reminder, he's talking about right now. I mean, clearly Jesus wants us to do everything we can to work for peace, to approach our enemies in a nonviolent way. So you, so you put these things together, and we have a picture of the world in which God wants it to be. It's a world where there won't be violence, war, or weaponry. Jesus wants us to live right now in a way that doesn't seek revenge, isn't centered on uh, self-protection as much as, as peace. And he even goes as far as to say that, you know, self-protection is not a reason to be violent toward another. Faithful living resists the temptation to be moved by fear. And, and we see Jesus even practices this. When, when Jesus pulls, or when Peter pulls a sword to protect Jesus, Jesus uh, tells Peter to, to put it away. This is one of the 
only examples we have of Jesus actually interacting with someone who is trying to to do something that we might argue is just, is right, just protect an innocent person, Jesus. But Jesus tells them to put it away. And Jesus himself is never described as carrying a weapon. Nowhere does he support the idea of violence toward another person, no matter what the, the case is. And so, so I know for a lot of you, you're saying, Matt, this seems like such an extreme way to live. And if it sounds that way, it really is. But nonetheless, it, it's the way that Jesus encourages his disciples. And as Christians, I think we can be uncomfortable with it. I am. We can disagree with it even. But I'm not sure we can really change just the witness we have of who Jesus was. So, so the question is, finally, how does this shape what we think as Christians who have to live in the real world? What do we think about weapons? Or, and what do we think about guns? Well, I, I'm not here really to change your mind. I suspect I'm not going to change anybody's mind. But I do want to give you some things to think about. And, and I'll just say as a way of, uh, of kind of context, like um, I grew up around guns. You know, when I went to sleep at night as a teenager, I had hunting guns under my bed. I had a, a firearm in my nightstand. It was just part of the kind of life that I grew up in. I never really called it into question. You know, I still don't think gun ownership was wrong or antithetical to faith. I'm not going to, I don't think it's a sin to own a gun. But when I grew up and as I moved to a different part of the country, I live in St. Louis now, I learned about the ways that guns were used, um, my views about firearms personally have just changed. I no longer own firearms as an expression of my faith. And I'd, I don't think this is required. I don't think every Christian has to give up their guns. But for me, it just seemed like the faithful option. And, you know, I haven't been opposed. I have three kids. As they have grown up, they've shown an interest, some of them, in hunting. So I will teach them how to use a, a gun. They hunt sometimes. But I just choose not to own them. And that's like my personal view. Owning a gun, I don't think it's a sin. But I think reading the message of Jesus may cause some of you like me to just at least rethink your personal relationship with guns. And, and so having said that, let me talk about not the, the government use of guns by police or, or military. I think that's a different issue. But when it comes to gun laws and our understanding of the Second Amendment, I mean, I don't think there's any question that our country has a unique history of protecting and promoting the freedom to own firearms. We, we almost have this obsession, I think, in America with this particular right, and it really is somewhat unique. And I have to admit that, that it troubles me. I'm really troubled anytime Jesus is used to promote the, the right to bear arms. I'm not going to argue um, that the Constitution says that, I'm not even going to argue whether the constitu- what the Constitution means by that. I'm not a constitutional scholar. But what I know is that our, our faith takes precedent over anything else. And, and I even hear pastors who have bring your gun to church day. And this happens more often than you think. There are pastors that preach while carrying a firearm to prove that Jesus would be on the side of gun owners. And, and I really I think this is outrageous. It's not supported by even a cursory read of Jesus's life. You know, as, as one person said, and it's always stuck with me, devoting oneself to instruments designed for the purpose of taking human life is a non-Christian practice. And instead, I think we find little in the life and ministry of Jesus that would support gun ownership for Christians, especially weapons designed for the injuring or killing of people. In the kingdom of heaven, in the new creation, there will not be guns nor the need for them. 
Jesus taught his disciples not to be motivated by fear. Jesus taught several principles that come ahead of self-protection. And I just think so often we allow fear and the need to protect to be our primary guiding principles. I'm not saying they're not important, but Jesus never asked us to make them our primary guiding principles, certainly in our decision-making around guns. And so in this fallen world, I think Jesus challenges us to limit and to reduce guns, especially in this country. Jesus would almost certainly challenge not only the proliferation of weapons, but the underlying motives that cause us to want them and to want to use them. And so like as a Christian, I see really no backing in scripture for political policies that increase or promote the right to own any and all kinds of firearms. And conversely, I really think that like reasonable regulation and restrictions that reduce um, weapons and their proliferation seems consistent with the way of Jesus. And I know for some of you, you will deeply disagree with me and that is okay. I welcome that disagreement. But I think as people of faith, we are challenged to to really look at the the basic life and witness of Jesus and say um, less guns would certainly be the way of Jesus, not more guns. All right, when we come back, we're going to turn our attention from domestic issues to more international issues, including immigration and kind of how our faith and evangelical Christianity historically has shaped the way the U.S., Uh, deals with other countries and foreign policy. Our guest is going to be Dr. Lauren Turek. Um, She's going to be joining us right after the break. This is the F Word, Conversations on Faith on the Big 550 KTRS. It's no secret that over the past year, many of us have struggled emotionally, socially, financially, and spiritually. Not being able to be together in person has only added to the sense of disconnection. For all these reasons, it is fitting that Easter is to be the beginning of a new day and the dawning of a new journey for us and our church. You can find out all the details at gatheringnow.org. At the gathering, we celebrate big. Easter is a time to witness a God who brings something new from something old, hope from despair, and life from death. Our Easter service on April 4th will be a powerful online worship experience that will include music, testimony, a message of hope, and a chance to participate in a Zoom communion. Simply visit gatheringnow.org to find more details about this special online worship experience, and don't forget to invite your friends and family to join you. Everyone is welcome. And Easter is just the beginning, not only because it will be a much-needed and hopeful celebration of the risen Jesus, but the following Sunday, April 11th, is also the relaunch of in-person worship at all three of our sites. Again, visit gatheringnow.org for all the welcome back information and how to register to attend. If you participate at the gathering from afar, our online worship will continue to remain a robust and meaningful worship option. However you join us, we look forward to meeting you soon at gatheringnow.org. Welcome back to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I am your host, Matt Miofsky. And, you know, so many of us think of faith and Christian faith as a private and personal thing. Something that impacts you, but shouldn't be that public or maybe doesn't have much to do with the public. But this really isn't the way that faith works. Faith actually has enormous consequences for our public life. You know, how our communities think and react to various realities, how our government decides 
what to do, how to best serve people. And faith even shapes global or geopolitical events, how our country understands and relates to other countries. And no one understands those relationships better than our guest today. Dr. Lauren Turek is a professor at Trinity. She spends her time studying and tracing how faith, especially American evangelical Christianity, influences the way the U.S. has related to other countries. And I'm excited to learn more about this. Dr. Turek, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I want to start with your story because this is quite a thing to study. I'm always fascinated by how professors end up at a place. What led you to become interested in this intersection of evangelical American Christianity and and U.S. foreign policy or the way that we relate to other countries? Sure. So I've always been really interested in the intersections between U.S. domestic and foreign policy, particularly as that pertains to grassroots or interest group activism. I'm just always really intrigued to see the ways in which domestic interest groups can actually shape U.S. affairs abroad. It's it's something I think particularly interesting about our democracy. Um, And so for me, when I was in graduate school, really delving into research that examined those intersections, I was studying Nixon's, uh, President Nixon's policy of detente with the Soviet Union or his efforts to relax tensions. And I saw a lot of stuff that I expected in researching that in terms of interest groups who were either for or against his detente policies. Um, You know, it was not surprising, for example, to see that uh, there were Jewish interest groups that were really unhappy, for example, about his willingness to go a little easier on the Soviet Union in some ways uh, because the Soviet Union was repressing Jews, and so they were very unhappy about that. What I didn't expect to see were evangelical Christians being really fired up and angry about Nixon's detente policy because based on where I, what I had been reading, I tended to think of evangelical Christians' political activism being mostly about domestic issues, you know, abortion or parent school or all the things that we typically think of. And so as I started to read about their foreign policy activism, I said to myself, hmm, this is, this is different from what I usually think of um, in terms of what evangelicals are usually up to. Because if we do think of evangelicalism and foreign policy, it tends to be about Israel. And here I was starting to see evangelicals be really concerned about trade policy and religious liberty issues in the Soviet Union. And it was, again, sort of not what I was expecting to see, which makes for, I think, an interesting a topic to do research on, especially when you're looking for, for, in my case, a dissertation topic and then later a book topic. I mean, this is like a dissertation searcher's dream to find this interesting intersection. Now, can I ask, did you grow up, uh, do you identify as Christian? Did you grow up in faith? Was there an aspect of this that uh, came from your own, your own faith perspective? This is, so that's a great question. I, I'm not a Christian. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not, I've been secular essentially my whole life, and, and I don't identify as uh, Christian or religious. And I had very little exposure to um, evangelicalism. When I was in graduate school, though, I took a class and in the religious studies department at the University of Virginia on the history of Pentecostalism, which I knew nothing about before mm-hmm. I took the class. And I found it absolutely fascinating. It was very, very different from the Catholic upbringing that I had had. And I knew that that was an aspect of my larger dissertation and then book project that I wanted to explore because it was such a, from the very beginning, very global facing faith, one where people were traveling around and doing missionary work. It had a very outward looking dimension to it. 
and it really captured my attention as something interesting to study. So I, ca I came to the topic as an outsider. I'm writing as an outsider to evangelicalism. Um, and that I think, you know, in terms of approaching the project, it gave me perhaps a different type of insight into the types of activism that evangelicals were up to. It gave me a different insight into the way that they were using religious language or human rights language to express their particular policy goals, I, because I was looking from a, a slightly different perspective than perhaps an insider to the faith might. Yeah, I think it's, uh, especially when we, you know, we talk about evangelical Christianity, and before we dive in, I actually wanted to go back and say, we've used that phrase a few different times. Uh, and one of the reasons I was curious is, you know, I think if you grow up in that tradition, you have a very different relationship with it sometimes than if you didn't, and it can be loaded. So when you say evangelical Christianity, for those listening, what do you what do you mean, just so people have a sense of what we're talking about here? Sure. And so one of the things that I tried to do, and sort of in starting off with the book project, you need to think about how you're defining your terms. Yeah. And I would like to say at the outside that evangelicalism as a religious tradition phenomenon, it's, it's actually quite diverse. We're talking about many different types of beliefs, different denominations and non-denominational groups. And so in order to provide a set of actors to follow in my story. I wanted to come up with a definition of evangelicalism that would be capacious enough that it would encompass a wide range of that diverse set of beliefs, but also bounded so that we were at least talking about the same core thing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of thinking of evangelicalism, I drew on uh, a set of beliefs and practices that seemed common to it to a number of evangelicals. So um, a belief in the authority in the Bible, a sort of shared belief in the authority of the Bible, um, a, a sense that that should guide your life in particular ways. Um, that was a really key thing to look at. Um, the other thing was um, having a kind of born-again experience, a personal relationship with uh, Jesus, that that was another key defining element of evangelicalism. And then a strong commitment to evangelism, that you need to go out and actually spread the gospel. And those three pieces of a definition which I, I sort of looked at a number of scholarly definitions to help me come up with that. That's one that's kind of paraphrased from a sociologist named Mark Shipley. I, just, I found that one really helpful because it gets at both beliefs, a set of beliefs, and also practices, the sort of things you do. It addresses the reality that going out into the world is a key part of the faith uh, or this sort of shared sense of faith which is really, really essential if you're going to be talking about folks who are advocating on foreign policy. So that seemed to be a, a good way to kind of start and think about how we're defining these groups. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, they're, just, they're very diverse. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about a diverse group of Christians, but, you know, broadly speaking, um, have the characteristics that you've named. So let's kind of dive in. I mean, you wrote a, you turned this dissertation into a book, it, the name of the book is to bring good news to all nations, evangelical influence on human rights and U S foreign relations, long title, but to bring good news to all the nations. And I mean, presumably you wrote this book cause you think Christians ought to care about this trace for us kind of how did evangelical Christianity begin to get interested in how the U S relates to other countries? I mean, what was the impetus for this? 
Sure. And I want to start by noting that there is, of course, a long history of evangelicals engaging with foreign policy, right? We we are familiar with stories about evangelical or and just Protestant in general missionary work in the 19th century, folks who are interested in doing evangelism abroad, but also a lot of interest in humanitarian work. So providing aid to people who are suffering from poverty or hunger, people suffering from natural disasters. There was also, of course, a lot of interest to protect missionaries, and so there's some foreign policy that emerges around that in the 19th century. What's really interesting when we think about that in the long frame of U.S. foreign policy history, of course, though, is that in the 19th century, and even the early 20th century, the United States was a very weak power in terms of global military power, global global power. It was growing as an economic power, but it's just not quite there with the big powers of Europe, for example. By the end of World War II, though, the United States was a superpower. It's a superpower that exercises a tremendous amount of influence around the world and had the capacity to do things like intervene in multiple countries at the same time to station troops all over the world. So even if we might be very cognizant of the fact that evangelicals had been interested in foreign affairs for a very long time, there's this question that we need to keep in our mind of at what point would U.S. foreign policy be powerful in a world sense, and at what point might U.S. domestic activism on foreign policy lead to particular changes in, in the actual world politics? Yeah, that makes so sense. In the 1950s and 60s, we start to see evangelicals concerned about things like persecution of Christians in the communist world. That becomes a real foreign policy interest for them. There's, of course, interest on other topics as well, like trade policy and whatnot. What's What's interesting and what we should keep in mind is that evangelicals were not a very unified political block in the 1950s and 60s. They just aren't yet. Um, We have a tendency, I think, to see the past through the lens of our present, and we think of this very united, strong uh, correlation between particularly white conservative evangelicals and the Republican Party. But that is something that emerged. That was not written in stone forever and ever. And that's a phenomenon that we start to see emerging in the 70s as evangelicals became more politically active and and the Christian right starts to emerge. And at that point, they're in a position to become uh, more in a position where they might be able to intervene more forcefully, become an effective, cohesive lobby. The other thing that we start to see in the 1970s that's really significant is that with the rise of movements for decolonization globally, so in countries in Africa, for example, many of the mainline Protestant churches started to pull out of their missionary engagements overseas. They started to notice those associations between colonialism and the critiques of colonialism and missionary work. And evangelical Christians, watching this phenomenon unfold, began to grow increasingly concerned that that change might mean that they Christians as a whole might not be able to fulfill the Great Commission as specified in the Bible, that they were supposed to go out and bring the good news to all nations and evangelize. And so there was this really strong anxiety that emerged among many evangelicals, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, that they were not going to be able to evangelize the, quote, two billion people in the world who had not yet heard the word, Mm -hmm. right? So there were all these people who had not yet heard the gospel. And so Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association organized a huge Congress, a conference, in 1974 to try to bring evangelicals together and inspire more cohesive action on their part 
because evangelicals tend to kind of uh, be a little bit more dispersed than some of the other religious groups that have a strong hierarchy. That's just not how they're organized. But this was a real effort to get evangelicals throughout the world to work together to evangelize the world. And one of the things that came up again and again was this real anxiety that, that they were not going to be able to evangelize everyone in time. Mm. And so between the growing power of the religious right in the United States and this real focus on the need to go out and evangelize, we start to see a confluence of factors that lead evangelicals to be much more engaged in foreign policy questions. How can they best evangelize abroad? Well, one of the things that they're really worried about is persecution of Christians in communist countries or other countries that they viewed, of, viewed as hostile to the gospel in some way. So what we start to see in the late 1970s is growing activism to promote religious freedom in the Soviet Union or to start supporting even more strongly anti-communist movements in Central America, or to lend qualified uh, and very cautious support to uh, what was going on in, in South, uh, South Africa, which becomes very complicated by the Reagan era. So that's interesting. So it really grew out of a desire to continue global evangel you know, evangelization of people and places where Christians were being persecuted uh, was an early focus. And it makes sense then that they started to perhaps speak out against uh, communism, if communism, to the extent that communism was um, persecuting, you know, Christian's ability to gather. What were some of the other things? I mean, I, I, when I think about this, it, they weren't, evangelical Christians moved from, thinking about persecuted Christians to also beginning to think about other kinds of issues. And and so I want to talk about some specific examples, maybe one of the best known or the most publicized connection between evangelical Christians and foreign policy is the relationship the U S has had with Israel as well. And that seems to be a little different. Can you talk about what many evangelical Christians believe about Israel and how is, how have evangelical Christians shaped in a very concrete ways, our relationship with that country? Yes, yeah, it's such a great question. And we're really lucky because there's a number of scholars that have written a lot of fantastic work on this. So we've been able to think pretty deeply about this question. And, and it is really important, especially in our contemporary politics. Um, the sort of quick summation of the story we, that we typically hear is that there are at least some evangelical Christians who see themselves as having what we might think of as a kind of similar covenantal relationship with God as the one that the Bible describes the Jewish people having with God. Um, and then in concert with that, there is a sense that evangelicals have a kind of special, maybe providential mission to work to restore the Jewish people to Israel. right? And we might think of that, and this is a belief that has evolved very much over time. There are different ways in which that manifested itself in, say, the you know, 18th century versus today, right? So we want to be cognizant that it's a complex set mm -hmm. of beliefs. When we talk about it in, in modern times, we often think about uh, dispensational millennial beliefs, the idea that um, sort of biblical time is divided up into these different periods, and there are certain things that will happen in those periods. Some evangelicals who embrace those dispensational beliefs have a set of ideas or a sense that in order to hasten the second coming of Jesus Christ, 
all of the Jewish people of the world must return to Israel. And so based on that belief and a desire for those biblical events to sort of unfold in one's lifetime, we have seen the emergence of a kind of Christian Zionist movement that has led evangelicals to become very staunch allies of Israel. And the hope, of course, is that a strong U.S.-Israeli relationship will be part of a larger effort to fulfill biblical prophecy. I'm glad you explained that because I think a lot of people kind of vaguely know, like, oh, yeah, evangelical Christians are really supportive of Israel, but I'm not really sure why. And this idea that a belief that literally— Jewish people have to go back to Israel before Christ can come again. And the only way they can go back to Israel is if there is a country, anything that we can do to support a strong Israel is in some ways supporting um, the ability of Jewish people to go back and eventually Christ's return. I mean, there's a real connection between what evangelical, evangelical Christians believe about kind of the end of the world and why they're such staunch supporters, right? Yeah, and what's really interesting is that recently we've also had some new work come out that adds another layer to that story and actually complicates it in some way. So if I could just give a shout-out, there is a scholar named Daniel Hummel. He has this great book called Covenant Brothers Out, and he looks more at the political and theological basis for Christian and Jewish cooperation to gain U.S. support for Israel. So What's really interesting about his book, and and what I think is very valuable for us to know, is that if we think broadly about U.S. history, what we might describe now as Christian Zionist beliefs or support for Israel, a lot of that support um, in the early years came from mainline Protestants and Catholics, as opposed to evangelicals. Mm -hmm. But there's this turning point that happened in 1967 and the Six-Day War, when those groups started to have less support for Israel. And what Dan Hummel shows in this great book is that after 1967 and amidst this kind of criticism from Protestants and Catholics over the policies of Israel's government, the leaders in Israel actually started to reach out specifically to build new relationships with evangelical and fundamentalist Christians. So it was a political effort too. It's, it's, it's coming from multiple angles. It's not just prophetic belief. It's actually part of a Um, a geopolitical strategy. And so by the 1980s, we have conservative political leaders in Israel developing these very close relationships with the Christian right in the United States. And so we want to think about this from from two ways, that there are political alliances at play that are really significant, as well as these prophetic beliefs Mm -hmm. that inform the relationship and the policy. So it's really nuanced and interesting. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good word. Thanks for explaining that. So I want to, we're kind of getting into some modern day issues and I want to turn to uh, turn a little bit in that direction. You know, early in Trump's presidency, there was a lot of controversy over the so-called Muslim ban. And at least since nine 11, of course, the U S relationship with Muslim countries has been a topic of a lot of debate. Can you talk about how evangelical Christianity has shaped, if at all, this relationship, both in positive and negative ways? How have they reacted kind of in the past 20 years to our relationship with Muslim countries? Yeah, this is, I think, a a key question as well, because, of course, in the, you know, with the events of 9-11, we had a an evangelical, a sort of very proudly proclaiming evangelical president in the White House, and he really held his faith as a key part of his uh, governing philosophy. He talked a lot about his faith. And in the early days, of course, after um, after the attacks of 
we had some contradictory rhetoric, right? We had language about an axis of evil, which was obviously going to inflame tensions between the United States and the countries that he included in that quote-unquote axis of evil. But then he also attempted to make a distinction between uh, the, the people in Muslim countries and the, the leadership in some of those countries. Um, and so there was this mix, mixed messages that, that were coming out of the, of the Bush White House on some of these issues. Now, um, in terms of evangelicals now, it's, again, it remains mixed, right? There are a number of evangelicals who have, again, in recent years, really embraced this very, uh, what can best be described as a kind of Islamophobic approach, where they have a, a very negative view of Muslim countries. There are um, remain concerns that they express about the realities for Christians who live in some Muslim-majority countries. There's a concern about persecution, so that shapes to some extent their perceptions of this. But I think a lot of what we're seeing reflects a, a kind of Islamophobic um, set of priorities in the United States, right? And this is where we get the kind of um, anti-Sharia law rhetoric coming from some um, conservative Christians, um, and where we start to see perhaps less sympathy for um, persecuted Muslims in countries like China, right, with the Uyghurs, uh, where there isn't the same kind of advocacy on behalf of those groups, perhaps, than uh, Christian groups who face persecution. So I think it's been a mixed picture. On the other hand, there that's not to say that all um, evangelicals share those beliefs. There are also evangelical groups who are working, for example, with refugee resettlement and that sort of thing. So yeah. a mixed picture, the, the most common thing that we get, I think, in the media is the is the former, though. No, I think that's helpful to, to say. You know, it's not all negative. I mean, the, the efforts to... Um, stand up for religious persecution and uh, fight against that is in many cases noble. The resettlement of um, refugees, which happen, many churches are involved in. I mean, these are admirable efforts, even if there is, um, this is Islamophobia, which is also very real coming out of the church. And, and, and I think even more recently, the sort of anti-immigration Christian nationalism fear that the other is going to somehow dilute Christian influence, even domestically seems to be an element too of, uh, of skepticism about allowing non-Christians into our country. Yeah, there's a real resistance, I think, you know, that we're seeing coming from that, which I suppose on some level reflects fears about the demographic decline that some Christian mm-hmm. um, denominations are experiencing, though we might also look to the roots of that decline and, and question, is that coming from young people leaving churches that they feel do not, re- you know, reflect the pluralism of the United States or the wonderful diversity of the United States, if they feel but, so there are a lot of reasons why, why people are leaving the church, but you can imagine how that anxiety uh, might affect some of those perceptions. Yeah. Well, let me sort of ask a broad question. I mean, given all that we've talked about, do you think, and you you kind of started studying this as an outsider a little bit to, to faith, you said, do you consider evangelical Christian influence on U.S. foreign policy to be largely a helpful one or a harmful one? I mean, how do you sort of evaluate Christians getting involved in this way? From my personal perspective, I I have found it to be mixed. So uh, 
in terms of promoting religious liberty in the Soviet bloc, the story that I tell in the book is one of evangelicals being deeply engaged in that fight to push uh, Soviet bloc countries to stop persecuting Christians. And certainly very supportive, you know, the the, the events uh, or the sort of treatment that the Christians were receiving in the Soviet Union, people were being beaten, they were sent to exile, they were forced into psychiatric treatment. These are terrible things that were happening. And so the United States using its moral leverage seems like a reasonable uh, part of a broader Cold War strategy. Now, if we're talking about another case that I take on in the book, which is evangelical support for Rios Montt, who was a dictator in Guatemala, who uh, led a genocide against the native uh, the, the Mayan people in that country, uh, and evangelicals lent him support as part of a broader anti-communist uh, policy, a sort of desire to, to see an, a strong anti-communist win, that's that's clearly not a good outcome, right, to, to contribute or aid and abet a genocide. And in the case of South Africa, which is the third case I take up in the book, Here's a case where evangelicals were promoting a gradual end, a peaceful, gradual end to apartheid, rather than pushing very strongly for justice and racial equality in one of the most repressive countries in the world. So it's mixed, right? Sometimes they're fighting for what seem to be broad U.S. values of religious liberty, but sometimes the policies that they support through their foreign policy, at least the ones I look at in the book, lead to really negative outcomes for people, right? People fleeing their homelands, people being murdered by death squads, people suffering longer uh, and longer under a, a brutal regime. So it's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's mixed. And so in terms of thinking about what, what Christians might like to take away or evangelicals might like to take away from that is I think um, you want to be maybe not hubristic in your in your approach and, and not assume that, that you kind of know know what's right. It can be very hard with foreign policy to know what the consequences or unintended consequences of your activism might be. So I think being circumspect and trying to really uh, pay attention to what your particular political biases might blind you to, right? If you really cannot see outside of a particular perspective, it can make you perhaps uh, less willing to see what's happening on the ground in another country. I want to, I want to end, this has been fascinating and part of me wants to open up, well, like, let's talk about South Africa. That's another fascinating yeah. example. Let's talk about China. But I, I kind of want to end with a more personal question. You, you don't just study this, you teach classes on this. Yeah. You know, undergraduate students come and learn about this. Um, why do you think it's important for the average person listening or coming into one of your classes to consider these things, to consider the ways Christianity shapes and has shaped our country's relationships around the world? Why should this matter to people? One of the things that I think is most important for people to think about in terms of foreign policy is that sometimes we, we might be of the idea that we should only be thinking about foreign policy in terms of power politics or grand strategy or these, or, you know, these you know, men making decisions at the highest levels of government. But the reality is that there are all sorts of other factors, cultural factors, religious factors, race and gender that shape foreign policy in ways that are maybe not so obvious to us. 
And so if we think about the ways, just in this case, that how do religious ideas shape the language that we use to talk about national values? And how do those values then get uh, woven into the policies that we put in place? How do people blend their faith so much so with those national values that they can seem to not be able to disentangle them, right? So that gets to the idea of Christian nationalism. We might think about the ways in which those values can then be used to guide what people think of as acceptable parameters for policy or the ways that leaders might talk about their policies. I love in my classes to look at uh, President McKinley's justification for seizing the Philippines uh, at the turn of the 20th century when the United States finds itself acquiring a small overseas empire. McKinley and other Protestants use the argument that they need to, quote, Christianize and, quote, civilize the people of the Philippines. And that very notion shows the ways that U.S. national security interests got bound up with ideas about Christianity and Christian mission and race and white supremacy. So all these things get linked together. And you might miss that if you're not looking for these more amorphous cultural factors. You might think it was just about U.S. strategy around finding coaling stations or something, or you just don't get the full picture. Um We also might think about the ways that religious groups can become really powerful lobbyists and political activists. Catholic leaders and priests and nuns were really influential in advocating against the Vietnam War and in advocating against U.S. policies in Central America in the 1980s. Um, That activism really matters. The activism of the evangelicals that I write about really has an influence on foreign policy. And we can't discount the power of these domestic interest groups. It really is important. And so I think if we don't pay attention to these factors and to all of the other factors that shape foreign policy, we might get a very one-sided perspective of what has guided our nation's engagement globally. Well, Dr. Turek, thank you so much for your work, your book, To Bring Good News to All Nations. If people are interested in this, they can find it on Amazon or they get books. Uh, It's... dives deeper into some of these examples that you named, but you've really taught me a lot. This has been interesting. It gives, I think, all of us something new to think about in terms of the way our faith impacts things much beyond just our personal lives. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really exciting to talk to you. And I want to thank all of you for joining me today. We covered a lot of ground today, and I want to hear from you. Even if you disagree with me, you can let me know, and you can uh, chew me out if you want to. You can write me at the F word at gatheringnow.org. That's the email address. So it's the F word at gatheringnow.org. You can also find me on social media. I have a public page on Facebook, Twitter. Just search Matt Miofsky, Instagram. All the ways that you uh, do social media, find me. Let me know what you think. Ask a question. Um, If you have an idea for a future guest or something you'd love for me to cover, please let me know. We would love to hear from you. And then lastly, Easter is one week away. It's next weekend, April 4th. If you do not have a a church home or or you don't have a place to worship, I would love to invite you to worship with me and the church I serve, The Gathering. Uh, All of our Easter services are going to be online this year. 
Uh, and then the very next week, April 11th, we'll be launching in-person worship here in St. Louis. But you can go to our website, gatheringnow.org, gatheringnow.org, and find all the details for how you can worship with us online on Easter. Worship services start live streaming at 7 a.m. in the morning. I- I'd really love for you to join me. I'd, I'd love to have you worship especially if you're interested or intrigued by church and and maybe have never been to church before or if you've been burned by church in the past, but but maybe you're feeling a nudge to try it again, I'd love for you to to give it a try. So I hope you'll join me. Uh, But I will see you next week, not only in church in the morning, but we'll be back with a show in the afternoon. Uh, Until then, thank you so much for listening and have a great week.